was just reading an article that was headlined old movies that still stand up <laughs> and proceeded to list the matrix and office space and fight club those are all from 1999 <laughs> and i just looked at that word old uh -huh. and now i mean you know i guess they're almost right <laughs> i mean listen people born in what is it 2006 this year yeah are adults yeah, yeah. They have to pay taxes and everything oh wow yeah <laughs> yeah but, but cricket's cat was born in 2006 so no <laughs> yeah well <laughs> cricket's cat needs things. to pay taxes <laughs> yeah well, welcome to the podcast, everybody. It's a little too quiet. It's the Ferndale Library Podcast, and it's brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. My name is Jeff, and we're joined today by Drew. Hello. And Simon. Hello. And Everett. Hello. And we're here to talk about classic films that still hold up. And that's up to interpretation. I have no idea how old the movies you have, but Drew already knows I have one that's at least 45 years old, because I've picked Alien. <laughs> but we'll get to that later. Um... Simon, this was a cool idea that you had. Oh. You, you develop our collection of movies. I do. And you are a believer in, in classic films still holding yes. up. Um, it, yeah, it kind of came about mostly because um, people at Movie Trivia Nights sometimes complain that I ask too many questions about black and white movies. And it's like, mm. oh, there's a whole world of film before 1967. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, yeah. and I think that I was just thinking about like what Drew actually I overheard you talking about what constitutes a re like a, a, a classic film that still holds up. What, what are the qualities you think that really define it? Oddly, they are at, um, they're, they're kind of opposite qualities. So the, the films I was thinking about, including like our, our film club pick for, for March, the African queen, which is definitely something that holds up some of them fall into the category of the human condition and human emotion doesn't ever actually evolve all that much. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at something with good dialogue and good acting, that holds up because it's a presentation of the unchanging nature of humanity. But Whoa. the exact opposite end of the <laughs> spectrum, and equally true, though it shouldn't be, is things that are totally visual artifice, things that are creations that are not tied to reality as we know it they also tend to hold up pretty well, the same way that a beautiful, fantastical Francis Bacon painting is still very meaningful, regardless of the time period it's, it's in. Constructions and artifice also hold up very well. That's a, that's a, you really laid down the gauntlet there. <laughs> Big thesis. <laughs> Everett, when you think about a classic film that you still love, what is it about it that keeps you coming back to it, if it's something you rewatch you re often? I think it's something that just never firmly leaves my consciousness. Yeah. Um, so, you know, some things that hold up, it's not that every piece of it holds up, sure. but there is an overarching, like I'm thinking about it for days or I think about it months later, or I want to rewatch it right away. Mm -hmm. um, and I, yeah, just, it just sits with you even, and it'll come up. It'll like kind of resurface at the most unexpected times and you're like oh right that's that's a good movie yeah um and that can be for like some of the qualities drew just described sure i well okay so we did just do rom-com trivia simon yeah fa fairly recently yes so I feel like I'll start with one of my picks, which comes up often when we talk about rom-coms, and it's all the way back to 1934, <laughs> and it's it happened one night. Yes. Um, like hilariously, that. my pick for what to talk about is also from 1934, but go ahead. Go yeah, ahead. yeah, yeah. I, th I thought <laughs> we could start there and then maybe move forward and yes. get up to <laughs> the aliens and the Blade Runners, etc. And this is like something that's known as a pre-code era, right, Simon? Yeah, just barely. This is the Hayes Code. Mm -hmm. Does anyone know much more about that? That's sort of like... Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> so, um, well, okay. In Hayes Code is goofy. It basically, way back in the day, um, there was a moral panic about what was happening in Hollywood. Uh, could make several references to how history repeats itself. It's fine. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and the Hayes Code, it's named, I'm forgetting the man's first name, but it's named after a dude whose last name is Hayes. Um, who he put together this thing to essentially make Hollywood self-censor itself so they wouldn't be federal regulations censoring it. Um, and it's the type of things where if you think of the old gangster movies where there's like the gangster always has to die at the end, like unless there's an actual redemption arc, nobody can be seen actually. Uh, let me think. I don't crime, know. Crime can't pay. Crime can't pay. Yeah. <laughs> Um, no premarital sex, no even reference to it, uh, married couples sleeping in separate beds, like, et cetera, et cetera. There's a, there's a really famous, if you Google like Hayes Code parody photo, you'll find, um, even at the time there were some contemporary cinematographers that made jokes about what they could and couldn't do. And there's like one photo that somebody took that's like, yeah, this is everything you can't do in the Hayes Code in one photo. It's mm -hmm. pretty funny. Um, but yeah, in like July of 1934, the Hayes Code went from this is a suggestion to you have to get this stamp of approval before you can send this movie out to most movie houses or movie theaters. And that is the precursor to the rating system that we have today. Um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, back to 1934's It Happened One Night. Clark Gable, Claudette Colbert, and... Uh, just a mismatched couple go on misadventures and hijinks together on a road trip. Uh, they hate each other for most of the movie and then fall in love. It's the classic rom-com formula. It's a movie that I had heard about for such a long time, always referenced, finally sat down, watched it, said, yes, they're all right. I get it. Everything works. Good story. Memorable. Great, great screenplay. It's uh, well-paced, everything. So that's the Rosetta Stone for all rom-coms. I'll say that right now. But uh, speaking of sort of another quippy rom-com, is a 1934 movie, Simon? I already hmm. got spoiled what your pick is. What's your pick to start with? Oh, yeah, The Thin Man. The Thin Man. <laughs> um, it, yes, the, the Thin Man, 1934. It was released literally two months before the Hayes Code went from a suggestion to being a requirement. Um, if you wanted just a quick summary of that movie, it is an improv comedy murder mystery. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> It's about Nick and Nora Charles. Nick is a lightly, ret lightly retired detective. Uh, he married an heiress, uh, and he kind of doesn't work anymore. Neither does she. It's fabulous. Uh, and they get pulled into solving a case for an old friend. Um, and the actress had so much chemistry and kind of like an improv theater background that there's a lot of improv in this, which is rare because of how expensive film used to be. Mm -hmm. Um there's a there's a story that like the first scene where you're introduced to Nick Charles and he's teaching a gaggle of bartenders uh, how to properly mix a martini that the director just told him to like vamp in character while they set up the blocking for the shot. And then when he was done doing his whole bit about how you need a certain rhythm to mix the perfect martini, the director just shouted, cut, print it, we're good. <laughs> um <laughs> So it's the the acting is really natural mm -hmm. because there's so much improv in it. The pacing, it's a really tight hour and a half. It's really funny. Uh, I literally just watched it again last night and there's just like the cinematography is also incredible. Mm -hmm. um, I'm forgetting the man's name because I'm terrible at names, but there's a, a Chinese American cinematographer for this movie who like had a really illustrious and wild career. It was, um, but yeah, it's really, the framing is awesome. Um, whew, where I, it's the central mystery is also super twisty. It is and very you twisty. you can't figure out who the murderer is until Nick reveals who the murderer is. I, uh, I literally just watched it last night, so it's pretty fresh in my brain. It is also wild how many things reference it uh, to this day. Like there are bits where I'm like, oh, that's Lucille Bluth in Arrested Development. Um, there's other bits where it's like, oh, this is, they've got a dog and it's literally the same dog they tried to get for the artist. Yep. It's, uh, if you are a millennial of a certain age, you know, a book called Nick and Nora's infinite playlist. They are named after the main characters of this movie again from 1934, but there's like seven movies in this series. Yeah. <laughs> and this first one is the only one that came out pre Hayes code. So there's 
everyone is really drunk or hungover and making jokes about it. Um, there's bigamy. There's like jokes about kept men and sugar babies. There's out of wedlock relationships, the scandal. Uh, and then as the series goes on, they're still all really good. But you can tell definitely that, oh, yeah, something happened. Sure. Because all of a sudden, no one's drunk anymore. Sure. No one, you know. <laughs> sure. I, I always have a, a mixed feelings about recommending that movie because uh, for all 30 minutes, there someone has a martini in their hand yes. <laughs> in every single sequence, despite how charming and, and quaint and pretty much PG it actually is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, James Wong Howe is the cinematographer. Thank you. And Dashiell Hammett wrote the book. Yep. Uh, yeah. Agatha Christie style. Twisty mystery, yep. get everyone in the same room, yeah, kind of a thing at the end. So that's always fun. Yeah, this huh. one was gonna be on my list, and then I heard Simon was into it. I was like, oh. okay, I will just support it. Yeah, because yes. I, I also, I love that movie. Mm -hmm. I think I watch it at least once a year. Yeah. Um, what I learned in this recent watching is that, in addition to all of the other um, references that, like, um, media that references, there are. Nick and Nora martini glasses. <laughs> Incredible. Um, so, uh, yeah, and it is it is pretty kind of a gag that uh, Nick is not in a scene without a drink. Right. Yeah. Sometimes it isn't as fancy as going doing. The, I think it's the waltz. Yes. <laughs> uh, he doesn't always do the waltz to make his martini. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's a it's just silly, and before you know it, it's over. It always, for me, kind of vibes well for folks who might also um, be like Hitchcock fans. Oh, yeah. So yeah. if you start being going down the rabbit hole of the rope and mm -hmm. oh, what's that one that I can see Jimmy Stewart, but I can't think of the name. Rear window. Rear window. Um, just similar. It's just kind of it's a small world. Yeah. Right. You're mm -hmm. not like. It's just these people's lives mm -hmm. and then a lot. Yeah. A lot of diet, like purposeful dialogue, improv. Yeah. Um, it just almost pushes like it along. Four set yeah. pieces total. It's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Drew, how about you? What do you have to start with? Uh, so I have what Charlie Chaplin intended to be his last film. And by all rights, is his last good film, I would say, oh. which is 1952's Limelight. Um, Chaplin kind of perceived the changes in the world and how that impacted his career. And so he brings back a version of the tramp. This is the comedian tramp who is down on his luck and no longer part of the part of the Broadway scene. He finds a ballerina who's attempted suicide, nurses her back to health, gets her career going. It's a little bit of a star is born, but without industry stuff. Um, and they both kind of bring each other back. This is sentiment into sentimentality. And so I understand that some people do not love this, but as a summation of all of the different things Chaplin could still do in the 1950s, um, both in terms of writing, directing, he wrote the score, his physicality is still hilarious. It has a scene at the very end that is a duet with Chaplin and Buster Keaton. Wow. It is the only time they are together. Um, it's ridiculously cute. It's ridiculously physical. And yet at the same time, it is nothing but touching. He cast wow. five of his children in it. Um, his half-brother is in it. Um, he actually like chooses to like leave the ballerina to make space for, for a younger man to fall in love with her, which is his son, Sidney. Um, goes out. Everything in it is very very sincere, yeah. very direct, and just, I find it heartrending. I cry every time. Maybe mm -hmm. I'm just a mushy person. I don't know. It's also the only non-honorary Oscar that Chaplin ever won. When it was re-released in 1972, he was awarded Best Score. Oh, wow. um, yeah, so his other two Oscars were both, um, the one in the 20s for the circus was honorary, and then another one that was more of a summation award. So... Yeah, uh, the the theme that uh, the main theme from it, which comes in for the ballerina Terry's theme, um, is in itself that you can hear how elegiac it is. And then um, Emerson Palmer and Lake, I think, put lyrics to it, and it was re-released in the seventies. Um, so yeah, I think it's underappreciated because 
it's not him at his physical peak. It's not the most comedic film. It is two and a half hours long. I don't feel like it drags personally, but I understand that some people do. But I think that as somebody incredibly important, looking at possible exile from the United States, looking at the oppression he was under politically, thinking this is my last chance to make the statements I want to make, to choose this very personal, touching story, um, it gets me every single time. Wow. I'd actually never heard of that movie. I'm embarrassed. It's on Canopy, and we have it on DVD. Hey, because I was going to bring up Modern Times, which is a film we discussed at Film Club once. And I remember having that as a selection, not being sure how many people were going to show up, and we had a full house. It was was insane. Um, But a lot of people wanted to just come and talk about Charlie Chaplin as an artist. So, yeah, Limelight. So glad we have that. And we also have Modern Times, of course. Um, Everett, what about you? Do you have a pick for us? Oh, yes. I have been so excited. Okay. Because any chance I have to tell the world about one of my favorite movies, uh, it is Weltumdrat. For those who do not speak German like myself, um, that's World on a Wire. It's a 1973 West Germany movie. Okay. And... Uh, it is, was originally, it's more to say, it was originally supposed to be, it was released as a two-part miniseries, mm-hmm. um, which makes sense because it uh, is a th- over three-hour movie. And there are some scenes, I've never actually seen it in miniseries form, but I do know there are some bits that were kind of cut or shortened to make it into a over three hour long movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and you feel it. There is an intermission. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to watch it over two days. Uh, but it follows a main character who works for a company called Cybernetics and Future Science. And they um, have built a simulacron. And that is basically kind of what it sounds like a simulation computer program. Mm-hmm. Um, not to be confused with the matrix and I will kind of point out as I talk about it, why (laughs) it it has similarities, but the way it works is a little different. Um, but if you are familiar with the matrix, you're a little, you kind of have a, a lead in to know what's going on here. Um, and things just start. So he, he, he's working there. He's one of the programmers and then, director dies suddenly and from there things just start going missing including people um and he's promoted and he starts learning things about the simulacron that he was not aware of and he helped build it right and um and i will not spoil it because it's just too good but what what really and it's just, I mean, I realized doing this list of movies, mm-hmm. I really love slow movies. Mm-hmm. So it it is, uh, you know, take a break every 30 minutes, grab a snack, another mm-hmm. glass of water, pick it back up. Sure. Um, but it, uh, it really is about what is reality? What does it mean to be a person? Um, and I think it's ever more relevant now like this is one of those things like yeah it is always in my mind because it's always relevant with um ever changing and advancing technologies Mm -hmm. whether it was technology in the 70s or all the conversation over ai Mm -hmm. now Mm -hmm. um and because the computers learn Mm -hmm. in the simulacron yeah so uh and and the main character talks about it in context of Plato's realm of forms, a mm. realm of ideas, which is the idea that what we perceive as reality isn't real. There is a realm where the real things are mm. that are we are that that what we perceive as real is just the reflections or shadows of reality. And I um, and that comes up in the movie through expert framing and blocking um 
every there are mirrors everywhere. There are reflections of the people talking in every scene. So um, the main character at his at his desk at work, he, his desk is like a mirror, and so you see him in his desk, and you see him at his desk. But which is real? Are they both real? Are none of neither of them real? Um, and you're just every scene, you're just hit with this. What is what is the shadow? Is it all shadows? Um, but it's also so 70s. Sure. The hair, the clothes. <laughs> um, the, they do this thing with like makeup where you kind of start to pick up that based on the ghost-like makeup that it might mean that they're less real. Sure. Or uh, a different type of real. Um, so... But very subtle things to make you start questioning your reality. Nice. Um, and something that I I just don't see, and this is maybe because it's I don't I don't know I watch a lot of German movies, but like this, I don't see this a lot in American movies where um like maybe half of the time the person talking is off the off frame. Oh, okay. Sure. Um, but can often be seen in a reflection. In frame, um, and, and it it is just like so intentional and thought through, and you will find yourself at the end of the movie still questioning what is real, and am I in a simulacron? Wow! So can't endorse it enough. I love it. World on a wire. Can you? Uh, what's the German pronunciation? Weltem Draht. 1973. 1973s clothes. I'm seeing lots of tan and olive, maybe <laughs> big collars. Very wide lapels. Big, big lapels. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. I wanted to shout out uh, again. So modern times, of course, on that list of old movies that included movies from 1999, they did happen to include Casablanca, which everyone that's a standard, that's a go-to. It's always on TCM. They just showed it at the Redford. Uh, Rear Window was referenced recently. That was also on my list, but another movie people know well. We don't have to belabor that point. I think it is my favorite, Hitchcock. Uh, but this is a random tangent before I turn it over to Simon. I was talking to my brother the other day, and I was like, man, 1999, Matrix, Fight Club, Magnolia, Pleasantville, Office Space. There's a ton of movies about this whole, like, is this the life we want to live kind of movie? And my brother was like, yep, Gen X was in their midlife crisis. And I was like, yes, how <laughs> profound. Anyway, Simon, what's next on your list? Oh, geez. Well, okay. Now, mm, the thing is, I have such a, I have like a wide and varied pile of like 10 movies. And <laughs> you just mentioned Casablanca, which yeah. means I need to talk about the slightly lesser known Humphrey Bogart movie, The Big Sleep. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, it's that, about drugs yeah but you know crime doesn't pay because crime doesn't code. pay yes um <laughs> it's uh based on a raymond chandler novel the it's struggled to get released um because they filmed it during world war ii and then world war ii was over and all of a sudden the studio was like oh crap we have this huge backlog of war movies get them out get them out get them out get them out so it took a couple of years after World War II for the movie to come out. By that point, um, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall were married. It was, you know, uh, very different. But it's a great movie. It holds up really well. It's funny. It's a mystery. I will say the plot makes absolutely no sense. Um, the plot makes absolutely no sense in the book either. Uh, at one point <laughs> during the script, they called Raymond Chandler and they were like, hey, uh, who murdered the driver though? And he went, what? <laughs> Who? <laughs> I don't remember. I don't, I killed that guy. I don't know. Um, so <laughs> don't go into it expecting it to make sense, but go into it expecting like a lot of really great chemistry, a lot of um, just really good tight scenes between Humphrey Bogart and literally anyone else. Wow. Um yeah. <laughs> imagine imagine getting 75% into your movie production and saying, wait a minute, is this coherent? Yeah. <laughs> and then stopping everything. I do remember watching it and realizing that I was kind of just enjoying the vibes only. Yeah. 
Oh, it's also a really great movie to watch for the um, the way that people would get around the Hayes Code and still communicate what was happening to the audience, which is like kind of a lost film language these days of like, oh, Humphrey Bogart and this person share both a cigarette and a drink. Oh, boy. Like that kind of thing. This is another tangent that has nothing to do with the actual original, but yeah. was was Elliot Gould not in a 1970s version of The Big Sleep? Yes, there was also a 70s one. Where yeah. he is playing like I'm very much Elliot Gould in the 70s. It's kind yes. of a different movie. <laughs> it's a very different movie. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, there is also a 70s version of the movie. It makes even less sense and yes, it doesn't it have does. Humphrey Bogart. So you should watch the Humphrey Bogart one. Yes. <laughs> but I also hear the 70s one is pretty good too. Yeah. But. Vibes only. <laughs> uh, so David Bowie's first leading role was The Man Who Fell to Earth, 1976. And I don't know. Does it tell us that a film has staying power when it turns into a cult film? Or does that tell us that our time has just evolved in such a way that for a brief minute, we're going to love it? I think that's worth unpacking. I think a cult movie counts as a movie that still holds up. Because we're still rewatching it, right? We're, I yeah. don't know. And then if you've been a cult movie for 40 years, yeah. because it was really in the late 80s when I started seeing all this imagery, Guns and Roses, and I think Megadeth, and a lot of other things referencing the visuals of it, then maybe that's proof of its own staying power. But I got exposed to this film as a midnight showing at a college. Uh, not my college, somebody else's that I snuck into. But anyways... Um, and I didn't remember very much of it because I was, I was very young, but the visuals stay with me and the sound stays with me. So um, in this film, uh, Bowie plays a humanoid alien, Newton. He comes from a planet that needs water, but happens to have a lot of things you can turn into diamonds, comes to Earth, ends up in New Mexico, and uses the technology of his planet to become a very, very wealthy person, has an amazing apartment that's then referenced in the 2009 Watchmen movie um, as part of Ozymandias's uh, staying with his lair. Anyways, so there's a lot of things happening in this film that don't add up to a lot of plot. Uh, we do watch this humanoid alien become an alcoholic and fall apart. We, Bowie says he doesn't remember any of the filming because he was on a lot of cocaine. Um, visually, it's stunning. Every part of it is stunning. The New Mexico um, visual is stunning. His apartment is amazing. When he remembers his home planet, we get this surrealistic imagery that's just beautiful. And the music, which is not Bowie's, is so great. So um, John Phillips from The Mamas and the Papas was the musical director on it. Um, and he coordinated with, and I want to make sure I say this right, a um, Japanese percussionist and wind um, instrumentalist, yeah. uh, Stormo uh, Yamashita. Um, and so a lot of the music we get um, when Newton is remembering his home planet is this like, ambient ethereal stuff that I just really love and then Bowie was originally supposed to do the music but for whatever reason the negotiations fail but then we get Station to Station and Low 1976 and 77 albums which uses the visuals and then especially on Low you get a lot of this really beautiful music that is evocative of the film and I like to go back to that when I need to calm down. It is depressing um, <laughs> so I'm making it sound like it's like this beautiful art piece but by the end of it, you're seeing what being a wealthy businessman does to your innocent humanoid, <laughs> mm -hmm. well, kind of innocent, humanoid alien, how it destroys his ability to love and be loved and leaves him isolated. And it's not at all clear that he's ever going to make it back to his home planet or solve the problem he came here to solve. Mm. And it's just Bowie at his most beautiful physically. Yeah. 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 I just remember a lot of shots of his face and just lingering on his face. Mm -hmm. And how, yeah, 75 to 79 was a rough time for Bowie as far as uh, general health. <laughs> but, but he did make some beautiful music over in Berlin at the time. The man, the man who fell to earth. All right. Everett, what's next on your list? 
Well, speaking of cult following, yeah, um, I have The Fog by John ah, Carpenter. Yeah. <laughs> um, and 1980, uh, it's a classic 1980 John Carpenter horror film where you don't watch it because it's great. <laughs> you watch it because it's really fun to watch. Yeah. And there are great things about it, but you have to go in be like knowing that like it's not the best acting. Right. Uh it's not even the best like sets. Like I mean there's spe- great special effects, but um kind of gives you a low budget vibe. I actually forget what the budget was for it, but um uh it it for those who aren't familiar with it small coastal town um is going to have sort of a um i don't know if it's a centennial event but it's like a oh "Oh, our town is having an anniversary um let's celebrate the town but the town has some buried secrets um to its success um which actually starts to unravel um by way of a fog that rolls in um with a um Ghost Pirates. Ghost Pirates. I mean, the movie has me at Ghost Pirates, and I stay for the Ghost Pirates. Um, And I rewatch it for the Ghost Pirates. And what's great is that it's really just people in fog with glowing eyes, and the fog is glowing. And only, only in, like, one scene do you really kind of get a look of what the Ghost Pirates look like. Um, So it's a lot of, you know, you get to kind of, Decide how grisly they are. Sure. You know, are they bones? Are they flesh and blood? We don't know. Um, but they're back and they're vengeful because oh, the rest they're not pirates. Did I mistake that? Because they were from. See, that's where it gives a ghost pirate vibe. It very much gives a ghost but pirate vibe. But they're really do they not a, have swords? See, they do. So it's really ch- okay. So it. I okay. I did preface by saying this. Somebody movie called Dashiell Hammett. Movie. Um, so, ghost pirates? Question mark. They sure. are of a time of, I guess, swashbuckling on sure. ships, sure. right? Kind of an eighteen hundreds vibe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were, um, they are. It was a ship of lepers, um, and they were being guided by the city's lighthouse. Um, but the city decided last minute that they would um, not let them arrive revenge um and led to the death of everyone on board so fast forward to the 80s and some vengeful ghosts um and the things that stand out to me yeah it is the lighting um the lighting the lighting is so good the musical score is very minimal um and i love i love a movie that makes good use of radio so one of the main characters is this um, woman who runs the one like um, radio station um, from the lighthouse. And um, she connects all of the characters because she's able to both say what she's seen, um, but also kind of actually, I mean, goes from her playing music to just being like, get out of that building. The pirates coming like the ghosts are coming. And so she's able to like alert people. And, um, but she's also trapped herself. Mm -hmm. Like she's trapped to this feeling of obligation. I, I need to leave. My son is like alone with his grandma or nanny. I forget now. And, but I have to stay for the town because they need me. And it's just, I mean, it's, there's like a lot of tension for such a goofy movie. There's Mm -hmm. a young Jamie Lee Curtis. Right. Um and there's a radio station and a lighthouse. Yeah, there, sort of. I can't, I there it is. Yeah, there is a radio station and a lighthouse. Um, and it's a commentary on rewriting history, right? So the town had rewritten history that they were good people when they were in fact not, mm-hmm. um, and profited off of their misdeeds. It's you know, so you got the oppressors and the oppressed. Um, exploitation of marginalized groups. So, like, heavy topics in the goofiest way possible. Um, and, you know, it's not long. It's exactly as long as it needs to be. <laughs> That's awesome. It, it also fog. has Janet Lee. 
Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, mother daughter passing on the yeah. Scream Queen torch. Yes. <laughs> just such a well lit movie. I'll yeah. stay in the horror territory and just go ahead to Alien. I don't <laughs> know exactly why when this idea was proposed that that's the movie that came to me. But that is the movie, Drew. Because it's the best movie. No, no. No, no, please. Um, but one thing that I was thinking about, and the, the fog also kind of yeah. kind of brings up, is when we think about horror and sci-fi and what practical effects can do, mm-hmm. some of them feel really fresh and good in terms of lighting and glowing and in terms of puppetry in the case yeah. of uh, Alien. In the CGI world, we spend a lot of time going, well, was it seamless? Was it was it really verisimilitude? Did it get into the uncanny? You don't have any of that in the world of practical effects. It either mm-hmm. worked or it didn't work. Mm-hmm. And in Alien, it really, really works. It really does. Um, the only thing I would say about Alien that I've noticed when I've shown it to um, uh, Gen Z people is that one aspect of it that I really love that doesn't necessarily hold up well um, is that it spends a lot of time building dread very slowly and showing the technical functioning of the crew. Yeah. I love this because it creates the sense that these people are on a mining ship, but they've been together a long time. They understand each other well. You know, there's there's real camaraderie between them. And then when you get your big dramatic bursting moment, mm-hmm. it means a lot. But yeah. every person under 20 I've shown this to has been like, why? Why are we 45 minutes in and nothing has happened? Mm-hmm. But um, because it works, because it was shot so well, because the visuals are so good, I feel like there's enough in in like building dread and pain sure. um, that when you get your big dramatic moment, the payoff is better. Yes. Oh, I'm going to go on a very clumsy tangent here. So I have one too. Oh, we're going to get to all of it. It comes out in 1979, one year after... 1970s Halloween, which is the quintessential slasher movie. And so the idea of this horror movie being a cast of characters who are slowly picked off. Yes, it sort of fits that. You could almost maybe argue that it's a slasher movie. I would entertain that. You could. I've heard uh, Haunted House in Space thrown out there. But it's it's really so much more. It really is all about that character building. And it really is about them sitting around the table and just all those characters are really fleshed out. And that's something that later copies of a copy of a copy of a copy slasher films don't really bother with. It also follows what had happened in Halloween of this like uh, iconography of the final girl. But in that movie, I almost want to give it credit for doing a a psycho style twist because i feel like on rewatches they are kind of uh positioning tom scarrett as the main character and you don't see it coming that sigourney is going to be the last survivor i think that's wonderful too uh another movie that i almost think is a horror film slasher film in which a cast of characters are slowly picked off is Jurassic Park, which <laughs> Ever and I have been talking about recently. And Jurassic Park, to its credit, also takes 59 minutes for actually stuff to happen. And you really forget that on if, unless you really do return to it for a rewatch because it's Spielberg and it's magic and it's dinosaurs. But like that action doesn't kick in until an hour. So there's the, that. The book takes longer. The yeah. book, the Michael Crichton <laughs> book, which you just read. I did. I think that's a different podcast. Uh, the movie I was going to bring up is The Thing. Oh, okay, yeah. yes. Let's go there. So uh, The another Thing. Slowly picked again, up. Yeah. It, and I, I, I don't know. Maybe I am oversimplifying Aliens genre, but I, I put it in categories like The Thing, which is yeah. it's a monster horror movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you know, it, it is... Um, so, and I mean, obviously, in both cases, it's alien related. Sure. Um, yep, same picking off, same like, there's a lot of establishment. There's a lot of mm-hmm. exposition of like where we're at, why they can't leave, who are these people, their relationships. And then you get to see how their relationships, um, like in the trust oh, yeah. or lack thereof, changes throughout the movie. So, mm-hmm. and I will say anecdotally, some years ago, I watched Alien with my niece, who at the time was 12. 
and totally absorbed, mm-hmm. totally absorbed. Notice things that I didn't notice. Um, and I think, I think it's because it, it stands out. It doesn't stand exactly alone, but it is alien. Nothing else is alien. Right. Even though we're talking about other movies that have similar, I guess, setups. Sure. Um, nothing is the thing. Yeah. Even other versions of it aren't the thing. No. No. <laughs> it, it is sui generis. Yeah. And it is a workplace horror film. That's right. <laughs> and I kind of wish we had right. more workplace horror films. I feel like it really lends itself to, you know, undermining your manager's manager's intent. Right. And, uh, you know, what <laughs> what the difference between middle management, who's got to see these people through, and what upper management actually wants. Right. And mm-hmm. where do androids fit into the workplace structure? Hard to say. Harry Dean Stanton <laughs> and Yafa Koto want to get paid. Am That's I right. misremembering that Sigourney's character was going to be cast as a male character? That does sound accurate, actually. Yeah. yeah. I mean, feel free to fact check yeah. me on that. But um, and so I think I think the fact that they they didn't do that. Um, I mean, I, I when you hear about these things later, you're like, oh, that would have been such a different movie. Mm-hmm. Um, that I I'm glad they did the choice that they made. Yeah. Uh, before we that, let's get to more movies before we run out of time. Simon, did you have any others on your list that you wanted to talk about? Ooh, okay. Um, well, if we're talking about practical effects yeah. quickly, I'm going to rattle off several things. Please. And this is going to be really rapid fire. Um, the Testament of Dr. Mabusa. Uh, Mabuse? Mabusa? I think it's Mabuse. Mabuse, yeah. Um, my favorite movie ghost of all time. Entirely oh, practical effects. That's yeah. Right. Um, 1933. German movie, so you might like it. Um, also, the backstory on it is wild and could be a podcast in and of itself. Um, <laughs> Using practical effects to make like a very realistic, yeah. if not surreal looking ghost. So it's the ghost is done with puppetry and there are two different takes with two different puppets and then they overlay them over each other. Uh, so you both see what the human looked like and you also see this horrifying like meat bones organ thing underneath it. It's really cool. <laughs> Um, and that's 1933. <laughs> yeah. uh, I also, I'm just going to shout out the original Superman films, um, wow. 1980s, uh, practical effects. I, um, the first hour of that first one, it's like, okay, yeah, origin story, whatever. Okay. We've all, we've seen it a billion times now, but at the time people hadn't. And the rest of that movie really holds up. Mm-hmm. Um, Shout out, if you haven't seen the director's cut of the second Superman movie, you should give it a shot. It's a very different film, and Lois Lane is incredible in it. Um, And, yeah, practical effects. Yes. A++. Yes. Uh, Drew, what else did you want to talk about? Still living in horror and sci-fi for a minute. Yeah. Uh, George Romero's Day of the Dead. Yeah. Um, When we think about the the blossoming of of zombie stories, to 2009 to 2019 Mm -hmm. they're all trying to get back to something both in terms of stories of class and and who has resources and doesn't have resources but also in terms of um the practical presentation of a zombie Mm -hmm. uh can be so visceral and requires nothing except costuming makeup and movement Mm -hmm. like it's very pure to me in the way that like dance and mime is pure I may be giving more credit than it deserves, but I really love it. And I think that everything that comes after it references back to it. All of Romero's movies are interesting, but this one has better character presentation and better um, scripting. So it's just really great. And then the when we think about the, the films that um, are constantly regurgitated visually and constantly referred to in culture, you have to go to Blade Runner. So we're mm-hmm. still there with Ridley Scott, Mm -hmm. Um, 1982, um, the colors, the ideas about what it means to be a synthetic being, and again, that line, the question of what is real and not real, that seems to transcend whatever time period it comes out of, and pretty much every sci-fi film that tries to address that question is directly or indirectly referencing it. It's just so good. (laughs) Also also a a slow movie, sort of. Mm -hmm. Also very vibey. Very slow. Yeah. Mm -hmm depending on which of the five versions you maybe see. I'm yeah. People still talk about the origami. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's true. Ever. 
So um, they live. John Carpenter. Yeah. What a very different John Carpenter than the Fog. Um, 1988. It's a very. I was reading something where it's a sledgehammer approach to a commentary. It yes. is not. It is like we're talking about things that are slowly. Then this is from sure. the beginning, just like in your face mm-hmm. commentary on consumerism, inequality. Mm-hmm. And just apathy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and the big thing is there's sunglasses that reveal that there are invasion of the body snatcher type aliens that have taken over high ranking places in society. Basically, they're the 1%. And they are um, using capitalism and consumer culture to keep the rest, uh, like the humans mm-hmm. of Earth in submission. Uh, So when you put these sunglasses on, all of that artifice is removed and you're just left with like white billboards that say obey and Mm -hmm. magazines that are like say obey in black letters and magazines and what was money. Money is, this is your God. Um, and again, just in your face, I have to say, and every, I mean, everybody who talks about this movie talks about this scene. But you can't talk about They Live without talking about the six-minute-long fight scene, which, <laughs> yeah. again, this is one of those, it stays in your brain. Um, and it the big thing is, like, John Carpenter said, basically, I had Roddy Piper. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's a wrestler. Right. I got to give him a fight scene. Yeah. Right. But fans and philosophers, one of my favorites is uh, Slava Zizek, uh, also very long- like um kind of com- like explanation of what he thinks it's about sure. which is like a cr- critique of like a democratic ideology oh, and that the sunglasses show that what we think is a democracy is actually a dictatorship mm-hmm. with a like demo- like democratic mask yeah. on um and so like wake up sure. but the fight scene is is it just about toxic masculinity um these are two friends that's what mm-hmm. seems to really like get people is like they're two friends they if, are friends have you ever tried to convince your friends right. to change their mind right but the scene is literally just put on these sunglasses <laughs> and they fight and it's bloody yeah and it's long yep. and, and there are moments where you're like ow yeah exactly. ow like it's just like hard to watch and it but it's also ridiculous mm-hmm. um there's no music no it's just in the punching. scene just punching and grunting and occasionally like throwing a line out like put on the sunglasses, put on the glasses. <laughs> um and no put them on no what somebody pointed out is it feels important because right. it's so long. Right. But is it really important? Are we just trying to make sense? But what I what I like somebody's perspective the most that I read about was, um, you know, you watch it and you're like, what was that about? And you kind of feel empty. Mm-hmm. And that perhaps that's how we feel in consumer culture. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. buy something and does it add to your life sure. is it just kind of like thx 1138 i bought the dendrite i throw away the dendrite <laughs> i don't know um and maybe that's that's what it's trying to say is this fight is as empty as meaning as your consumer existence or that I you might fight that much to retain your ignorance like i don't want to wake up don't make me wake up right yeah, yeah that yeah that resistance mm-hmm. to knowledge and it also has led to a lot of parodies. Yeah. So it's referenced <laughs> in a lot of other um, uh, things that have come out since then, yes. TV shows and things oh, like that. So. Yeah, my my favorite was a video game called Saints Row 4 where they got both Keith David and Rowdy Roddy Piper as voice actors for it. And their characters in that game have no reason to have a six-minute fight scene, but they put in a six-minute fight scene of those two characters. Shout out to the great character actor, Keith David, yes. uh, who deserves a... Lifetime Oscar, as far as I'm Truly. concerned. And you can see him currently in American Fiction for a brief cameo. Um, I'm just going to quickly shout out uh, Carrie. I went to see it recently at the Redford yeah. Theater uh, with someone who hadn't seen it. And I pretty much thought that every single human being on Earth knows how that movie ends. Mm-hmm. Or if they do not know, it's been done so many times that it won't scare them but that scared the hell out of this person that i showed it to and was like they still work um anything else left unsaid any picks so 
April's next trivia night is yes. musicals. And you could go on forever about all the MGM classics. But 1967, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, um, starring Robert Morris, uh, who, yes, was Burt Cooper in Mad Men. If you want to see that dude in the era that he was, you know, made famous for on TV later, um, it's great. It's funny. It's also really early Bob Fosse choreography. So it's cool. Yeah. Drew Everett, any last minute shout outs? Uh, Dawn of the Dead. I swear I wasn't yeah. just on a horror film kick. And an anti-consumerism kick. I know. There was so many so many correlations. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I love Jaws, but yeah. I thought, is that too? I mean, oh, like, every, yeah. Practical I mean, do I, have to, do I have to talk about Jaws? Jaws. I, uh, one of my favorite on-screen relationships oh, yeah. um, mm-hmm. is between the officer and his wife. So, yes. Um, was it Brody? Yeah. I haven't watched it in a while. But yeah, yeah again, staying power. Mm-hmm. Very epic. Oh, yeah. Nothing to add except horror holds up for reasons. Yes. Yeah. Poltergeist. Oh my God. Exorcist. Yeah. Again, Shining. Practical effects, though. Maybe that's the key. Practical effects, good lighting, good stories, good characters. And six minute fight scenes. Folks, you've listened to another episode of A Little Too Quiet. It's the Ferndale Library Podcast, and it's brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. And thank you to Drew and Simon and Everett and me. I've been Jeff. And come to our library or any of your libraries and ask for any of the picks that we've provided. I'll have a list of everything we talked about in our show notes. Shout out to John Duffy for giving us music and shout out to the friends for, of course, giving us this podcast. Go to friendofriends.org for more information about supporting this podcast. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. We'll see you next week. <laughs>